0: The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 52 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. These are a collection of curated discussions for therapists and anyone interested in deep restorative transformation through the lens of relationships. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, Relationship Therapist. I believe when you truly see yourself, you create a ripple effect that allows you to be the change you wish to see in the world. And that invites everyone around you to do the same. This is the basis for my signature method, Connectfulness. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Tom Murray, an international trainer, speaker, and sex and couples therapist in Greensboro, North Carolina. We're talking about the significance of the present moment and what it proves about truth and endurance. Tom and I talk about what we really mean for our relationships, our past traumas, and our present realities when we say our thoughts create our suffering. We also talk about a carefrontational approach that Dr. Tom uses with his clients to help them see where they're creating their own suffering. We discuss the difference between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth, moving with the flow of life versus living in resistance, and the difference between intimacy and closeness. We're also going to be diving into conversations about monogamy, the Me Too movement, and the only deep knowing we can ever really have. Ready? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I am here today with Tom Murray, a sex and couples therapist based in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I am so excited for where this conversation is going to take us. So without further ado, welcome, Tom.
1: Thank you. So glad to be here.
0: I am so glad that you are here. I've been really looking forward to talking to you.
1: Well, I've been very ecstatic about talking with you, too, and and to be able to uh, meet virtually all of your listeners. This is wonderful.
0: Yeah. So before we got started, we were talking a little bit about your work. And you used a word that I totally loved. And I want you to maybe start here and explain this to our listeners. You were talking about how you work from an interpersonal place, but a lot of the work you do is something that you call carefrontational.
1: Yes, yes. The idea is that, you know, I, I view myself as a, a an elite coach for athletes or for musicians who are wanting to... Be excellent. And in, in this regard, it would be being excellent in their relationship. And so if someone has experience as an athlete or as a musician, they know that they would not have been able to get as good as they had gotten without someone who was identifying their growth edges and and confronting them but with but from a very strong and grounded place of caring and, and therefore carefrontational. So I am the type of therapist that will pick out or identify communication patterns that I observe within the session and bring that to the fore so that we can have a conversation about it around how these particular patterns are either helping or hurting that third entity in the room, which is the relationship.
0: I am smiling so huge right now. <laughs> this is exactly how I work too. I, I look for the patterns and very much want to hold them gently, but also be very direct in the same time.
1: Yes, Yeah. And I think when it comes from that intention of of caring, clients can hear it without a a level of defensiveness that would get in the way of the alliance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I also have found that, you know, when I frame my work in this way, and I'm guessing that you have a similar experience, my clients come in very early on, like by the third or fourth session, naming patterns that they're starting to observe in their life.
1: Mm. That must be so rewarding for you.
0: Well, it's, I think it's awesome for them.
1: Yes. Well, I meant that you've been able to teach them that observational skill. Because I think, you know, with, when we're in relationships, you know, study after study has shown that people are poor or, or or diagnosticians for their own relationships. That, in fact, first-year psychology students are better predictors of their friends' relationship longevity than the people actually in the relationship.
0: Great. Right. So can you break that down for our listeners and let them know what that really means? Because I, it makes so much sense. Yeah. We have trouble seeing ourselves. Like that's we, what I'm hearing.
1: We have trouble seeing ourselves and trouble seeing our partners as real people, with flaws and and with with idiosyncrasies that could potentially get in in the way of having a successful relationship, but our family and friends, because they're not invested in the same way, are more able to notice those flaws. And I think that and that's true with us as therapists, right? We certainly are still at risk of of separation and divorce, like you know anyone else. And we have we we have the same cognitive biases that everyone else has. So. When you're in a relationship, the, the beauty of couples therapy is that we're, that a third party who is not kind of mired in the weeds are able to have that helicopter view of, of the relationship. And we can begin teaching our, our couples how to take that step back, how to imagine if they were a fly on the wall, what would they actually be seeing? What would be the pattern that would be emerging and use that as an advantage, the, recognizing those patterns as an advantage to their own uh, healing process?
0: I, I often find that within those patterns, once a couple can start seeing them, there lies a recipe for what they need as a couple.
1: Excellent. Yes, I agree. I agree.
0: I've had this interesting experience with more than one couple. So I want to put it out there and see if this is something that you experience as well and what your thoughts are around it. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Oftentimes, a lot of the homework that I give couples is to notice, notice the patterns, notice what's coming up, notice how they're feeling, notice when they're when they're noticing a pattern, maybe it's five days later, or it's in the middle of something. And just to kind of sit with that. And then inevitably I'll have one partner who comes in with all this noticing. And typically the other partner will say, "Okay, now can you give us some homework?"
1: Mm. Yeah, uh, it sounds like mindfulness is a, an important part of your own way of working. Yes. And and you know, that that ability to just step back and and uh, to be an observer of our experience versus a participant in our experience is is so huge. You know, I I often do kind of a warm up with my couples in which I um, invite them to consider that that voice that they hear in their head, the narrator of their life, the voice that wants to describe things as good, bad, right, wrong, comfortable, uncomfortable, just, unjust. It's easy to assume that that voice is me because it sounds like me. When in reality that I cannot be the voice because I am that which is able to notice the voice. And the more that I believe that that voice and me are the same, then the more suffering I'm likely to experience. But the more that I can have space between me, the observer, and that voice, then... The greater amount of flexibility I have, or the greater amount of compassion I can have, not just for myself but also for my partner, the just the 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 there's less suffering that I experience. Uh, I just had a, a again a couple in which the the aggrieved partner said, "I just I hate it that I'm in the shower and I have these flashbacks of the affair." And there was this assumption that in order for them to heal their relationship the the aggrieved partner had to stop having those memories and and i'm sure there are many therapists out there who might be like yeah i can help you do that but my point my my view is that the mind is additive it's not subtractive and so we can't stop ourselves from thinking of something that would be like me saying rebecca you know don't think of a banana but how how can
0: you just made me think of a banana
1: exactly (laughs) right but it's less about how do we stop thinking about it and more how do we lessen our grip around the notion that I have to stop thinking about it in order to have a better relationship. But can I still have the thought, but hold it like I would a butterfly on the tip of my finger and still be able to move forward?
0: So, So how do we sit with these ruminations? Yes. And allow ourselves to not get trapped in them. And these are, contextually speaking, we're, we're talking about a variety of, of topics or subjects. It could be from an affair either on either end of the affair or it could be about relational patterns or we could be talking about a variety of things. But when we get this idea stuck about this is the way things should be or I feel affronted by this and we stay stuck in that loop, how do we get ourselves into a place in our relationships into a place where we could move, maybe into a place we'd rather be?
1: Mm. Well, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is get over yourself.
0: <laughs> Tell me more about that.
1: If, if we could, as partners in relationships, exercise a greater degree of humility, yeah, how much better our relationships would be. But how often, I mean, I'm sure, Rebecca, you experience this too, this kind of subtle message and sometimes not so subtle that, you know, basically every couple that comes into my office, there's this assumption that if my partner would change, that would make me happier.
0: Well, that's always the thing, right? Couples right. come in and say, yeah, we're having a problem. You need to change them.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Always. And when I talk about, you know, getting over ourselves, what I'm inviting people to do is to to have some humility. How do you, uh, you teach that? Well, sometimes it's about helping them to see reality more clearly. And I you know, I am sure there's some people out there who want to argue, you know, is there is there reality and, and and whatnot. For me, reality is always the present moment. That's reality. Being I'm here, here now. yes, yeah. being here now. And so when I have couples say, I just can't stand I can't live in this relationship if this continues. Well, what's reality? The reality is you are living with it. Mm -hmm. That's reality. And I'm a lover of reality. You know, my work has been so profoundly informed by the work of Byron Katie. I'm not sure if you have ever heard of her. I
0: have. Yeah. But for our listeners, go ahead and share what what has influenced you.
1: Well, uh, you know, Byron Katie is not a therapist. She has just been able to, to me, produce a very simple formula uh, that has, it's very similar to you know cognitive behavioral therapy, but it, it's without all of that jargon in helping people to see how their own thoughts create the suffering that they experience. For example, how often have we heard people say, my, my past haunts me or my past defines me? Mm-hmm. When when I look at reality I find that that is not possible that our past can't haunt us that our past doesn't define us but rather we haunt the past we define the past so you know if I'm in the shower and I have that thought a, a triggering thought for whatever reason I have a thought about my partner who had an affair if I have that thought do I do I grasp at the thought do I go back there and, and ruminate and ask why, why, why? Or do I just notice, oh, there's that thought and then come back to the warmth of the shower, the smell of the soap, the the wetness? You know, how long do I stay in the that moment of the transgression and, and experience the heaviness, the suffering that that, that brings about? Or how how do I bring myself back to the present moment where in fact there is no suffering, there is no transgression happening? I'll often have a couple, for example, in which an affair has happened, and I would say to the partner who had the affair, "How how many times did you have sex with that person?" And they might say, "Oh, I don't, you know, twenty times, for example." And then the aggrieved, and then I'll ask the aggrieved partner, "How many times have you?" imagined the two of them having sex. And the aggrieved partner invariably says, oh, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times. So who's having sex with whom? Right. Where's all the sex happening? And to own that self-generated suffering that comes about from the replay of it. The the, the, the so affair sex isn't happening anymore.
0: You're you're working from another lens where you're not just asking the person who's had the affair to take responsibility for having had it, but you're also talking to the aggrieved partner and saying you also have to take responsibility for these imaginations.
1: That's exactly right. The the aggrieved partner is not responsible for the affair having taken place. What the aggrieved partner is responsible for is their level of suffering that they experience in the present moment. This feels kind of radical. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I have talked to a lot of therapists, and I don't know if I've heard this perspective outlined.
1: Well, you know, I'm an an adult male survivor of childhood sexual abuse. A few years ago, I attended a retreat uh, of other adult male survivors. And of course, I, you know, I can't stop being a therapist just because I'm there, right? And so my therapist researcher mind is is going. And I'm observing these men. And I'm noticing how many Can I of pause them... pause you for one minute? Yeah.
0: I, I don't mean to. The reason I'm pausing you is because I think as a therapist, sometimes this aspect of our brain is in a way its own defense mechanism. It's our way of observing the situations that we find ourselves in and learning from them, making meaning, which is part of our own
1: healing processes. That is... My mind is blown just hearing you say that. Like, I have never thought about that before. <laughs> I'm so much <laughs> speechless. I'm sorry.
0: But that's okay. I just, I, I needed to check that out because it it's something I've been thinking about a lot and it's not necessarily something I've explored and y- you just outlined it and framed it in a way that I I just wanted to put
1: back out there. Yeah, very fascinating. Very fascinating. I'll have to give that more thought.
0: Yeah, maybe we could talk about that again another time. But meanwhile, let's let's come back to this observation that you were making. Yeah. As a therapist in a non-therapist
1: setting. Right. So as both a participant who has, who has the lens of a therapist, I would describe it that way. But when I was there, I, I quickly was noticing a pattern in which men who had problems in their current life could be put into one of two groups. Do they attribute the problems in their current life to the abuse that they experienced years, if not decades ago? or do they see the problems in their current life as separate from the abuse and i and mm-hmm. again this is anecdotal but i found that the former group the group that attributed their current problems to the abuse just seemed much more they seemed to be struggling much more than the those who didn't attribute their current problems to their past abuse and so when i began to just play with that of of how do we haunt the past? How do we define the past? Do we define the past as something we just go through? Or do we define it as something we grow through?
0: Mm. Recently attended a training with Esther Perel, where she was talking about PTSD and how so many people are looking at the post the trauma, the post traumatic stress. And her framework really comes from a place of what's possible in terms of the post-traumatic growth.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the um, for the nerds out there, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte is at the at the epicenter of that concept of post-traumatic growth.
0: Tell me more about that. I haven't heard of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just the, again, you know, when, when you're in the mental health field, uh, the, the slice of the population we see are those people who, have, are, who are, are struggling. Yeah. And so it's very easy to assume that when we hear people who have who've had traumatic experiences and they are, are you know, suffering in the present, we tend to believe that that must be traumatic experience always causes those deficits or those injuries and that, and that they're, you know, most people don't recover from them. That is, that is absolutely untrue. Most people who experience trauma experience post-traumatic growth. That's most people.
0: Do you want to define what that growth looks like?
1: It can look like, a, for a lot of people, it's a higher degree of resiliency because they their narrative about what they went through is, uh, 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 is one of, of survival, of thriving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I came through this. And, and often I'll remind people in my, in my office that the very fact that they're here in this moment tells me that everything they've ever done in their life, they've done perfectly. They've done right. How do I know? Because they're in the present moment. They're here with me in this moment. And this is the only moment that exists. So if they've, if they've survived everything up to this point then they must have always made the right choice. Now, we have an ego, right, that wants to say, but what if I would have, cha- I would have made a different choice? I would be somewhere else. And I just call that mental masturbation because that is not reality. The reality is there is no somewhere else. There is no alternative universe where there's a Rebecca who made a different choice and is a living a, a happier life. I mean, if you, if you even go in and you check that out, which I often do with my clients, when they voice a, a, a thought, I'll say, go inside and ask yourself, does that thought feel light or heavy? Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll often say it feels heavy. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, the truth always feels light. The truth with, always feels light. Always feels light. Without exception, the truth always feels light. What we get mixed up in is believing that perfect always feels good. Perfect doesn't always feel feel good.
0: I'm noticing within myself right now that, that there's a difference between good and light. There's there's yes. a judgment That's that right. is embodied around good 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 versus bad. That's right. And there's not so much of a judgment around light and heavy. Right it's more of a what is as
1: opposed right. to a judgment around it's it's the effect of stepping into the flow when we when we step into the flow of life there is no resistance by definition when we want to resist the flow that's when we feel the pressure that's when we kind of blocked the flow of life and that's there's this pressure against us
0: it's the resistance that's making it heavier
1: that's exactly right
0: you know i'm 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 going to go on a tangent again. Is that okay with you?
1: I love tangents.
0: Okay. So my grandparents, my paternal grandparents were both Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And so much of my frame in terms of how I learned how to see the world got passed down through their stories. One of the stories that has made a huge impact on me was when my grandmother was first taken to the camps and her sister was able to visit her through a chain link fence and said, forget everything, your life starts now. Mm. And it was that reframe that helped her survive.
1: Mm. What a gift. What a gift that she was allowed the freedom to define her life. And, And that gave her that flexibility. It gave her that flexibility.
0: I think part of the flexibility was in letting go of, in some ways, letting go of the memories, right? Of what life had been so that she wasn't stuck in a place of what she doesn't have
1: now. I think that uh, there's this notion of lack consciousness. And many of us, you know, hand raised here, our, our default programming is lack consciousness. I don't have enough. I'm not good enough, smart enough, capable enough, pretty enough, talented enough, wealthy enough. I don't have enough, 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 enough. And again, I invite people, when you go inside and you weigh that thought, does that feel light or heavy? Mm-hmm. When in reality, if we just look at reality, the reality is, for example, let's say it's not enough money. I don't have enough money. The reality is I have never been without enough money. How do I know? Because I am in the present moment. I've never had a moment where my not having enough money led to my death. I've always had enough. I've always had enough. And I think...
0: This is, this is the confrontation that you talk about.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. The carefrontation. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> when you look at reality, and again, reality is always kinder than the stories that our mind will want to make up. Always kinder. When I look at reality, the reality is I've always had enough. The universe has always provided. Now, my ego might come in and say, yes, but your preference is to have more money. Your preference is to have more smarts or more beauty or more this. And that's the nature of the ego, right? The ego is always more interested in the wanting than it is in the having. Hmm. Yes. And yet, and and there's nothing wrong with the ego. I'm not trying to bastardize the ego. We, you know, we all, we uh, all have one. We all have one and, and, and it's doing its job, right? Well,
0: there's, there's excitement in the wanting.
1: There, there can be, yeah, in the desiring, right? So, what couples do, if I can kind of swing back to couples, do. What, what couples often do is they're grasping so tightly at the fantasy of what they believe is the Hollywood relationship. They're grasping at it. They want the Hollywood relationship.
0: They want everything they think they should have.
1: Exactly. They want everything that they think they should have. Have or they need to have. That's another thought, right? I need to have him do this. I need it. When we loosen the grip on it, when we say these are my preferences, and that the reality is I don't need him to do this, how do I know I don't need it? Because he isn't doing it and I'm living in this moment. That's reality.
0: So, how do you help couples shape that reality in a way that both they can tolerate and sit in, in terms of what is now? And they can open conversations and dialogue into what I would like to add to this would be
1: well, let me just say in a kind of a roundabout in a roundabout way the the experience of being loved is really about our ability to be ourselves the uh, i don't know if you've ever heard of the book the art of intimacy it 's one of it's one of those books that absolutely changed my life and and they say the confirmation of being loved lies in our experience of being ourselves our confirmation being loved lies in our experience of being ourselves when we discover i tell couples that at the very moment you want your partner to be someone they're not to be someone else at that moment, that is when the divorce happened. In that moment.
0: moment that you wanted your partner to be somebody else, the moment that you didn't accept them as they are.
1: Exactly, exactly. That once you want your partner to be someone they're not, that's when the divorce happens. Why? Because the ego, it's all egoic. The ego is telling a seductive story, a convincing story that you will have greater happiness if your partner were to change in this way. And yet, There was a time when your partner and you didn't want your, didn't want the other. You didn't want each other to be different. You absolutely loved who they were in their totality. Why? Because you didn't at that time have a story about them. So that's the difference, right? Between intimacy and closeness. Intimacy is I have a relationship with you. Closeness is I have a relationship with my thoughts of you my story about you. And so it's easy to have intimacy at the beginning of a relationship. But as soon as the story begins to develop in which, you know, it could be, you know, could I spend the rest of my life with this person? I wonder if this person would be a good parent. I wonder, you know, blah, 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 blah. So we're already projecting into the future. And sometimes that happens even before the first date.
0: Mm -hmm. And then when once you're actually in there, and you know, things like they never do the dishes, or they leave the laundry Mm -hmm. on the floor, or they've had an affair with somebody else, or whatever it is, that's where maybe take me there. That's where intimacy becomes harder
1: for some. Well, you know it's this balance. So closeness is not bad and intimacy isn't good. I'm not trying to make that kind of that binary. Rather in any given relationship, you need some closeness because you know let's, let's you know the typical family household needs some prediction as to who's going to do what right mm-hmm. So let me define perhaps it'd be helpful. Would it be helpful if I define intimacy and closeness a little bit more? I think that would
0: be really helpful, yes.
1: So intimacy is about newness, novelty, low predictability, spontaneity, uh, low uh, or high anxiety. Closeness, on the other hand, is about predictability, low anxiety, uh, familiarity, from which we get the word family, right? Predictability. And so in the beginning of relationships, it's all intimacy. It's all new, novel, unpredictable. It's high anxiety, where closeness is is um, about predictability, about familiarity. And so, you need to in, in running a household, you need to know who's going to do what. And so, eventually, closeness comes in. And oh, and by the way, what is the kind of the prototypical example of closeness? Monogamy. Yes right? So this kind of expectation, we're going to only have sex with each other. And so I'm, I don't have to worry about you having sex with other people, which would be too anxiety provoking. I, I, we can commit to only having sex with each other. Well, so we have that closeness that comes in. For a lot of couples, closeness begins to take over intimacy. And in the severe cases, it's just this unconscious agreement to, to die together. So, you know, those old couples that part. right, you know, those couples that are at the restaurant and, and they're eating, but no words are exchanged. <laughs> yeah. They don't exchange words because they already have this belief that I know what the other person is going to say. So why bother saying anything where intimacy is or, or how do we ignite the fire in couples is that how do we create more mystery? I love Esther Perel. You know, she says about her, her husband, I don't need my husband to be my friend. I have friends. I need my husband to be my lover. And she talks about you need air to create fire, you need mystery, you need separation to create. She also talks
0: about a love-lust split that I think Jack Moran also talks about. Say more. Well, she the, the way that I'm understanding this, and it's still a concept that I'm playing with to, to digest, but the idea, and it doesn't sound so different than this Um, definition you've provided us around intimacy and closeness, but the idea being that we love is that familiar, it's that place where it's the family, it's the things we know. And lust is is the more erotic, the stuff that there is some mystery within. And that for some, not for everyone, but Mm -hmm. for some, we get caught or some people would get caught between the two where it can be difficult to lust after the one that they love.
1: Hmm. So it sounds somewhat similar to that notion of de-eroticizing our, our partners, mm-hmm. especially of, often after we have kids. Yes. The ones that yes. have sex with their kids' mother versus, uh, or their kids' father versus having sex with their, their partner. It, 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 there's, there's almost a, a naughtiness to, <laughs> to... To the family piece of it. Yeah, right. And yet, you know, most psychiatric problems arise out of the confusion of loving. Mistakes about being loved are rare if they occur at all.
0: You know, this this brings me to a to a conversation I had earlier with an with another guest where I'm I'm coming back to it in my head because we were talking a little bit about what does it mean to experience being loved? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And for some who have had childhood traumatic experiences it might be hard to know what that feeling feels like
1: yes especially if you didn't have a witness to the trauma so much of what yeah. determines post traumatic growth is is having other people be a witness to it and that doesn't mean to say that they observed the the actual traumatic event but that they were open and available to hear the story about it the experience about it and held held you or uh, held the the person in like warm regard. Yes, that's that carefrontationalness. Yes, or, or 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 just caring. Yeah, that when I and I think that's the work that we as therapists do is is we are are de facto witnesses to people's lives and and what a that's a, that's what we all want. I've, I think in many ways that is the basic motivation for marriage. We want to witness. We want to witness to our lives. Mm -hmm. And when we don't have it, when there's a divorce or a separation, there's this, uh, for a lot of people, can be a raw feeling of exposure. Um,
0: When you have exposed yourself to someone and they choose to
1: leave you. Right. Yeah. As opposed
0: opposed to, more of a question than a statement here, but as opposed to a death, a death of a partner.
1: I, I think so. Although it d- depends on the circumstances of the death. Mm-hmm. right? So uh, if deaths are sudden, it can very well uh, manifest in anger towards the the person who died. You know, when it's when there's some intentionality around death. Of course, we are, you can do a whole show about how our yes. culture treats death. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the things you said, Rebecca, earlier that brought that uh, triggered something for me is the. The concept of self-aside. Say more. That many people experience or commit self-aside, that being that they begin to cleave away important parts of themselves in order to go along, to get along, that they, they subtly. Like over boxing time,
0: themselves into, into
1: spaces. Well, and it, Well, it can be just no longer living with integrity. So saying yes to things that really deep down you you want to say no to. Mm-hmm. Or not voicing an opinion because you don't want to have conflict. So over time, those acts of self-aside. Not being true to oneself. Not being true to oneself. Over time, those acts of self aside, which I you know, I believe is pervasive in our culture.
0: Oh my gosh, yes.
1: Can show
0: up. This? I'm thinking of places in my own life.
1: Right. Yeah. Just checking in with your own experience, uh, and there's a difference between compromising and accommodating and in committing self-asside. I, I'm talking about those moments in which you are violating your own integrity. That and, and that happens often. I think with with people who experience abuse and trauma, who experience post-traumatic stress, is that they they experience these moments of self-asside. For example, if someone's denying your traumatic event. If someone's telling you it never happened or that you don't or aren't believed. Well, we have this this togetherness force and this individuality force, this this I want to stay a part of this community. So I have to kind of go along to get along. And, and is,
0: that's magnified even more if the people that are telling you that are your family of origin absolutely. and you're a child and you really
1: don't have a choice. That's exactly right. And so and so then you show up to life at some point and you don't know who in the hell you are. Because and, this
0: is how your view has been formed. This is your lens of the world.
1: Right. And, 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 and if you don't know who you are. <laughs> how does your partner? How does your partner know who you are? And I, I'll have a, many couples say, we don't know each other anymore. Mm-hmm. And they believe that that is a, a reason for not working. Right. And I, and I have to remind them that there was a time when they didn't know each other and they still came together i love that. So, <laughs> that isn't a death sentence. Just, be-
0: <laughs> just because you don't know each other. You know, this, this brings up a question that I'm just hearing, raising inside of me. A conversation I recently had with someone I'm really close with who said, you know, what's, why is it that some people choose, quote unquote, easy relationships and other people choose, quote unquote, hard mm. relationships, right? Meaning that some people believe that relationships, if they work, they should be easy or why be in them. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm.
0: I personally come from the the framework or the belief that relationships take work because they take a willingness to look at parts of yourself. And that's not always easy. There's often resistance that we encounter there. But now I'm thinking about this heaviness and lightness stuff that you were talking about earlier. And I'm just, I'm wanting to put this discussion out there and just see where we where we take this.
1: Yeah, I think this may be radical, I think relationships can be easy when we give up the expectation that the person be different than who they are, that when we step into the flow and I love you just as you are, that if those, if, if your dirty underwear is on the floor, the dirty underwear should be on the floor. How do I know? Because it is on the floor, If I argue with myself and say it shouldn't be there when reality tells me it's there, then I'm creating my own suffering. That doesn't mean resignation, which is different than surrendering, right? Surrendering is just, this is the isness of this moment. I'm not going to argue with the isness of this moment where, where resignation would be like, there's nothing I can do about it. This is the rest of my life, which feels very heavy to me. Oh gosh, yes. But rather I can go to my partner with this degree of non-defensiveness, which Byron Katie says, you know, defensiveness is always the first act of war. Mm -hmm. I can go with the degree of non-defensiveness and say, it means so much to me when I see you putting the laundry away. That means so much to me. In fact, when you put the laundry away, it means that when I have sex with you or if I have sex with you, I'm not thinking about all the other shit I have to do. Is it okay that I just said that? Oh, yeah, it's (laughs) totally for reals. <laughs> yeah. Because what happens, and this is typically a, a male issue, I don't mean to generalize it like that, but it's just my clinical experience. Men tend to make sex too expensive, meaning that, you know, sometimes men will, in my office, they'll be like, you know, I do this, I do that, I do this, I do that. And I say to them, if you can list all the things that you do, you're not doing enough. That if if you have it in your mind frame, which I think is is seriously misogynistic, right? If you have it in your mind that you're helping your partner hmm? clue, you live in that house too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're a partner. <laughs>
1: These are your kids too. There's no helping. It's not, I don't know how to cook. Yeah. That's misogynistic. That's this belief that someone else is going to come up behind you and, and do it. And, for you. Yes.
0: So one of the things that I hear a lot from women is I want to be desired more. I hear it
1: from men also,
0: yes. but you know I'm I'm curious in in this framework that you're presenting where that fits.
1: I I think it, it fits beautifully in that you know in Buddhism we we talk about a, a notion of non attachment, right? Yeah, that isn't to say one can't have desires. It's it's all about how tightly are you grasping at the desire. So. I can see beauty and and want to pursue my partner and, and have desire for my partner. And yet I also have to appreciate that my partner's ability to say no, let's say to sex, my partner's ability to say no is what gives the yes its meaning. If they weren't able to say no, then any yes would be meaningless. So having desire having an attraction to what is beautiful, I think it's just normal. It's how do I manage myself if I'm unable to have that which I desire? Can I hold that lightly? Can I I see my partner as a whole complete enough person separate from me who I can still love that they you know they if they if they want to read a book rather than have sex can i love that they want to read book rather than have sex because if i don't love it i create my own suffering
0: and i'm creating my own suffering when i say if they don't want me in whatever way, then that makes me not whatever it is. So oftentimes i like the dialogue that I'll hear in my office is I'm not enough. Right. Like whatever that, that storyline is. Yeah. That is how they are creating their own suffering. And from what I'm hearing you describe, that's where you ask that person to take responsibility for that dialogue. Yes. yes. Now, what happens when this is like a long term repetitive pattern? Like... In the instance of, I don't know, let's just put this out there. Like there's a couple whom one of the partners has had a long-term affair Mm -hmm. and hasn't been very sexually intimate with their wife. Yes. But otherwise, the relationship is somewhat balanced.
1: Can you say more? um, 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 uh, um, more. I'm just
0: making this up kind of as we go. So I'm, I'm just curious how how to maybe play with a scenario or how to how to talk to our listeners about a situation where maybe for a long time one partner has not felt desired in one way or another. Whether right. it's maybe the partner hasn't shown up to be a co-parent, maybe they haven't been sexual with them, maybe they've been seeking that sex elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm just playing with this idea that it's it's up to each partner to be in the isness of the moment. And yet there's also a place. I'm not saying that partners have to be everything for each other, but there's a place where when we see these patterns emerging and we can bear witness to them, you know, it's it's been a few years since we've had sex or something mm-hmm. along those lines. At what point do we keep being in the isness, and at what point do we go into that more carefrontational
1: place? Well, I'm not a. I've kind of evolved, I would say, in terms of my work as a relationship therapist, and that is if if there is a mixed agenda couple, in other words, there's a a partner who's leaning in, but a, and then there's a partner who's leaning out, or if both are leaning out, meaning that there's just this overall degree of of indifference. At those moments, it's often the case that there are no embers left to reignite the flame. And then my job can be about how do they want to untie this knot? Uh, what kind of decoupling process do they want to experience? I'm not one of those people who believe I have to save every marriage. And so I do, I spend a good amount of time assessing their commitment to the work. That it, To add to that, monogamy, in my opinion, isn't for everybody. And I know that's heretical to many, but if someone is... I think
0: it's something we need to hear more.
1: Yes. If someone is habitually, and I, I, that even is, has a negative tone, is having sex with other people, we often in our culture now want to label that person with the label of du jour, which is a sex addict,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when it just may be this person is not, that is not their mating style monogamy. We all have different mating styles. But because of this limited definition of modern marriage, which you know is only about 150 years old, mm-hmm. we we want to assume that marriage means one thing, and that is a committed monogamous relationship. When I have couples come in who have had a sexless marriage, I ask them about monogamy, and invariably they'll say, "Yes, it's important," or "What?" or "Sex discrepancy," right? So someone wants sex more often than the other and the other one doesn't want sex at all. And then I bring up the 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 topic of monogamy, I have to remind them that monogamy means sex with one person. And if you're not having sex with this one person, then are you by definition, is that a monogamous relationship?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to reflect on something I've heard Esther Perel talking about, which is, you know, monogamy also meant one sex with one person for all of your life.
1: Yes. As opposed <laughs> to this
0: idea that like we could have all of these different flings and relationships and things, and then we get married and start only being with one person.
1: I, I'm in favor. I know this would never happen. I'm in favor of marriage licenses that come with an expiration date uh-huh. because, you know, there's this concept. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of moral hazard? No, I haven't heard this. Yeah, it comes out of the insurance industry, but I think it's in, it's uh, it has important implications for our work as as relationship therapists. Moral hazard is essentially the process of not taking care of things when you know someone else is responsible for it. So, for example, renters may not take as good care of their property as the owner.
0: I'm going to take different care of my car if I own it versus if I lease it.
1: Exactly. Or, or, yes, exactly. Someone, I forget who it was. This is not a Tom Murray original idea, but someone talks about the, uh, the implications of moral hazard to marriage, that, that once couples sign that marriage license, it's almost as if they stopped taking care of the courting rituals that brought them together. That they take things for granted. They take each other for granted, under the assumption, well, this person's always going to be there. And and, and so if you knew that your relationship had an expiration date, mm-hmm. how you would you may, show up different? <laughs> yes, you may you may find that you're more likely to attend to those things that are important part of keeping a relationship, quote unquote, healthy.
0: I totally agree with this. You know, my, my husband and I have been married twice to each other with no divorces. We, mm-hmm. at, at our 10-year mark, we renewed our vows. Love it. So, and this is something I believe that we're going to try to continue doing like every decade because it's, it's a, you know, just a little backyard ceremony. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, right. but it's the intention setting.
1: Yes. And what a beautiful intention. You know, again, what, do, why do we have the ritual of marriage? You know, one of the reasons is that it provides a community endorsement of our coupling so that the community, uh, is, is expected to, to support our union.
0: It's also a business arrangement. It's you know creating a, a container for families when we have children. It's a piece of identity.
1: Yes, it's all of those things, right? And it it triggers the closeness that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, it triggers the closeness, and the one of the things that I didn't mention is that it is not possible uh, for. Rebecca to ever know her husband. It is not possible. You will never know him. The most you will ever know are your thoughts about him. Mm -hmm. The belief that you know your husband, that's closeness. I
0: know certain things though. Like I know what I feel like when I lay my head on his chest. That's not knowing him.
1: It's knowing me. Deep, deep knowing that no matter how hard you try, you will never know him. But it is in his presence that you get to know yourself better. And you hear that in the word intimacy, in to me I see. I get to know myself better in your presence. As soon as I begin to believe that I can know you, then I'm constructing a story. And that story then begins to have be a barrier for that connection that you experience. So when our partners leave in the morning, and we might have a fight in the morning, when we get together in the evening, who am I going to greet at the door? Am I going to greet the person who left in the morning? Or am I going to greet the person who arrived in the evening?
0: And what am I holding when I do? What parts of me am I bringing into that?
1: Yes, yes. Energetically, especially, right?
0: This is the mirroring, you know, it's, it's not so much that our partners share something about themselves, and we share something back about ourselves. But it's that, in the context of this relationship, I learn about me.
1: Oh, mm, mm, that's, yes. I mean, that is the power, I think, of this frame, is that it requires us to be, take greater responsibility for ourselves. That, 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 uh, I had a friend the other day, uh, you know, I w- he was reaching out to me for emotional support. And he said, you know, I don't he, he said something effective. I don't want to ruin your day uh, with his with his problem. And I said to him, uh, you can't ruin my day. That is my job. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can't hurt my feelings. That is my job that it's only in my evaluation of my experience that i have positive or negative feelings if i just stay at the level of the description you know it is what it is it's only when i evaluate my experience do i have positive or negative feelings about it and that evaluation may happen so quickly that we think that it's there's no evaluation happening or or we have these these tapes that play in the background of our own consciousness that comes from our early childhood that are there. And when we're under stress, right, that's when those old tapes come back and are played full force. Yes. Under stress. So, and again, that would be an example of that self aside So part of the work that I do is helping people to reclaim those lost parts so that there is that mystery. There is that that intimacy. You cannot have intimacy and still commit self aside You cannot have passion and commit self aside It's just not possible.
0: I love it. Tom, I feel like I could talk to you for another like five hours right now and <laughs> other topics in my head. So can I just ask you to come back on the show another
1: time? I would love it. And, and it's been such an honor speaking with you, Rebecca. You're, you're a real natural at this. Uh, your audience is so fortunate to have you, uh, extend your, your, your talents to them and to welcome the invitation to me too. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Tom. Speaking of my audience, how can they find you?
1: They can find me at www.drtommurray.com and they can email me through that website.
0: Wonderful. And we'll include that in our show notes too. Tom, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure to spend this time with
1: you. You're very welcome.
0: We'd love to hear your feedback either by using the hashtag Popscast on social media or shooting us an email at gmail.com. If you're interested in working with me, you can learn more about my therapy, mentorship or private couples intensive retreat experiences by clicking the link in our show notes. And if you want to dive deeply into building conscious relationships with your beloved, Consider joining us for a week-long couples retreat called Divine Mirrors at Menla Mountain Resort. There's also a link in our show notes. The Practice of Being Seen is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr. produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show. And we'll join us next week for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness.